As I mentioned earlier, I recently released a book called The Lazy Approach to Evangelism, A Simple Guide for Conversing with Nonbelievers. In this video, I want to briefly talk about how we implement that and biblically speaking what that looks like and how we can respond to some of these dominant strongholds in conversation, again, without going into offense, without being in a heated argument or without any kind of altercations. And the title comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And Paul says the following. He says, Conduct yourself with wisdom in your actions with outsiders, non-believers. And what he's about to do here now is give us two principles for offering responses when conversing with non-believers. And his theme for, the, for this entire passage here is essentially this. Keep the main thing the main thing. So he's going to start with the word of advice and then give us the goal or principle when offering responses with non-believers. And again, he starts by saying, conduct yourself with wisdom. And then says, first principle, make the most use of your time. Now, let's briefly unpack this. In the medical community, there is something known as triage. And it encompasses the following. Suppose you're a doctor and they rush a patient into the emergency room. And this patient has three wounds, a broken wrist, a scraped knee, and a bullet in their chest. What do you operate first? Clearly, the bullet in the chest. But why? Because that is what is most life-threatening. That is what you will kill them if you do not address that first. In the medical community, this is known as triage. Now think of this notion, theological triage. And think of it this way. Suppose you have one hour with a non-believer. You knew that in one hour, Christ was going to return. And you have a non-believer before you for one hour. Let me throw out four topics and you tell me what you would focus on age of the earth, creation evolution, biblical inerrancy, or God exists and rose Jesus from the dead. Well, clearly the latter. But why? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. What does it take to be saved? Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Christ is Lord, and God raised Jesus from the dead. And believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old. No, that's not what my Bible says. Now, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. But again, if we want to make the most use of our time, which is Paul's first principle, it's going to require a theological triage. What is the main thing here? I could put it this way. Every one of us are going into the afterlife with some false theological beliefs. And I would rather have someone go to heaven with false theological beliefs than go to hell with false theological beliefs. I had a young lady ask me, can you be a Christian and believe in evolution? Now, I personally don't believe in evolution, but her question was not, do I believe in evolution, but could you be a Christian and believe in evolution? And I said, well, well, I don't, sure. Because what it takes to be saved is to confess Christ as Lord and give your life to Christ, have a relationship with him. And she said, okay. And, and we kept talking and she had some questions and she asked that question a few more times and it dawned on me, I don't think this lady is a Christian. And so I asked, I said, are you a Christian? She said, no. But she was looking into Christianity. Long story short, after that conversation, I said, well, you know, I have to ask, where are you at now? Would you, would you like to start a relationship with Christ? And she said, yeah, I think I would. Now note in keeping the main thing the main thing and making the most use of my time with her, I didn't bother on the tangents. I focused on the main thing. Why? Because I want to make the most use of my time. We save no one. That is a Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to meet them where they're at, know what they believe, why they believe it, and keep the main thing the main thing. Because there are essentially, at its core, two things that make Christianity true. God exists, and he rose Jesus from the dead. And now Paul gives us a second goal and principle in the next verse. And he says... Again, starting with a piece of advice. Let your speech at all times be gracious and pleasant, seasoned with salt. There's a salt thing again. So that you will know how to answer everyone who questions you. Now, if you know anything about Paul, he was very specific with his words. And he says here, know how to answer everyone, not necessarily what to answer everyone. In other words, what I'm sharing with you here is not, is not some script to be followed. 
every conversation is going to be different. Every person is different. Every stronghold is different. And we want to pay attention and listen carefully to the way they word their position because, remember, we want to know who we're talking to and know how to adapt our approach accordingly. Now, to explain the know how to answer as opposed to what, when I teach at a church, I like to find the youngest uh, male in the audience who I know is not married, and I say, let me ask you a question. Yes or no, have you stopped beating your wife? And oftentimes, they will say yes. And I say, oh, so you used to beat your wife? And they say no. And I say, well, which is it? And then they get kind of confused. And then I whisper to them, are you married? And they say, no. So I ask, well, why didn't you just say that? Now, the point here is, in this instance, note it's not important to know what to answer, but how to answer. Because within that question, it's a loaded question, there are at least two assumptions. One, the person's married, and two, that they beat their spouse. But if I disagree with the underlying assumptions behind the question, then it becomes appropriate for me to not give a direct answer, that is, what to answer, but rather, how to answer. And rather than answer the question directly, I question the question. Wait a minute, why would you assume I beat my wife, or why would you assume I'm married? Hence, knowing how to answer as opposed to what to answer, because again, overall, we want to keep the main thing the main thing, make the most use of our time, theological triage, and know how to answer as opposed to what to answer. So, as a quick example of this, I had a young lady once who identified as an atheist. Again, the position God does not exist. And I asked, well, why are you an atheist? I'm placing the burden of proof on her to ask her to justify her position. And she said, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Now, most Christians at this point want to jump in and get into a debate about biblical inerrancy or the Bible. But not me. I'm going to use the lazy approach. So she said, I'm an atheist because the Bible's full of contradictions. And my response was, and how does that prove there's no God? And she looked at me stunned. Why? Because most people never asked her that question. She never had to defend that kind of an answer. And to kind of break the awkward silence, I said, let me put it this way. If God exists, would he have existed before the Bible was written? And she says, oh, I don't believe in God. I said, no, I understand that. But just follow me here. If God existed, would he have existed before the Bible was written? And she says, well, yeah, if he exists. I said, okay, great. So even if I can see that the Bible is full of contradictions, how would that prove he doesn't exist or make him stop existing or disappear out of existence? How does that prove atheism is true? Note, in my short amount of time with her, all I did was ask a few questions, plant a seed in her mind, kept the main thing the main thing, made the most use of my time, and knew how to answer as opposed to what to answer. In a nutshell, that is the lazy approach to evangelism. Now let's briefly apply this to the three dominant strongholds. So take postmodernism. Again, the idea that truth is relative, there is no right or wrong, there is no absolute objective truth. I had a young lady once say, Eric, you cannot say Christianity is true because there is no truth. I said, okay. Um, then I just have one question for you. What you just said, is that true? Because if you're telling me there is no truth, and yet that statement, there is no truth, is true, then what you just said can't be true because there is no truth. Or am I missing something here? Note, all I'm doing is asking a question in order to point out the inconsistency or flaw within the stronghold. What about scientism? Well, whenever people say, Eric, give me scientific evidence for God, my response is usually, and why would I want to do a silly thing like that? And here's a problem in a nutshell. Science is a wonderful tool for studying the physical world, but it is a tool that is limited to only studying the physical world, whereas God, if he exists, is by definition a non-physical entity. So you cannot use something like science, which is limited to the physical, to try and investigate the non-physical. It's what we call in philosophy a category fallacy. 
It's like someone coming up to you at the beach and saying, I just discovered plastic does not exist. And you look over his shoulder and see the beach is littered with plastic and say, what are you talking about? And he says, well, because I just spent the last two hours with this metal detector and I scanned the whole beach and I found a lot of metal, but never once did it detect an ounce of plastic. And the problem, of course, is that he's using a metal detector, not a plastic detector. And in the same way, you cannot demand, quote, scientific evidence for God that is limited to the physical when God is, by definition, a non-physical entity. That is what we call, again, a category fallacy. What about naturalism? Well, briefly, we can put it this way. Suppose I'm a musician. My ability to play the music and perform is going to be dependent on the instrument and a proper functioning instrument. So if I'm playing the guitar and as I'm playing you detune it, it affects the sound. If I play a piano and you break the keys, it's going to affect the music as well. But does it follow from this that, therefore, the music is inside the piano? Well, no, of course not. All that follows is that there's a cause and effect relationship. And in the same way, when it comes to the existence of the soul, sure, while I'm embodied, I depend on a brain, much like a musician or guitarist would depend on their instrument, but it doesn't mean that there is not one or the other. It just means that there is a two-way correlation, cause and effect relationship, or even dependency. And there's a lot more we can get into, but suffice to say that we don't have to get into heated debates. We don't have to burn your bridges. All you have to do is know how to maneuver the conversation, ask the right questions, and again, keep the main thing the main thing, make the most use of your time, and know how to answer instead of what to answer.